This week, the comics guys explain Black Adam, Part 2. Hello, welcome back everyone uh, to our two-part Black Adam movie prep episode. Uh, last time, we went over the very complicated history of the man himself. Uh, this time, we're going to go over all of the characters who have been uh, in the trailers and otherwise uh, reference that they're going to be in this movie. Uh, the one who we are not going to talk about at great length, though, for this episode is Hawkman, because <clears throat> we already did an entire episode on Hawkman, uh, and it would take this entire episode to talk about him again, because he is so very complicated. Right, exactly. The character is such a mess that we dedicated an entire previous episode to him. Yeah. Um, this version seems like it's Carter Hall, right? That's what you're getting from the, the trailers, too? I think so. I mean, they're clearly going to... I, it seems likely to me that the whole kind of, like, ancient Egypt and his backstory uh, is going to be why it's him, right? Like, why why he's there, but exactly what version of Hawkman we're going to see, um, I think is still kind of unclear. Well, like the actor they got to play him. But, Absolutely, um, yes. Uh, but the first character we are going to talk about today is... Is the mighty Isis... Who came so, up a little bit last time, I think. Right. We talked about her, basically, that uh, Adriana Tomas in the comics, basically. Um, the But the, the character, Isis, uh, originally wasn't a comic book character at all. Um, she was a TV show superhero who was created in 1975. A two-season Saturday morning, uh, you know, live-action adventure story uh, by Filmation, uh, who were the same studio that was producing the Shazam uh, TV show for DC as a license from DC. And the two of them were being made literally side by side and broadcast uh, as uh, two half hour episode, you know, two, two half hour episodes in a, you know, Shazam slash Isis hour of uh, TV programming um, on Saturday mornings. Uh, Filmation actually um, no longer exists as a company and the properties that it owned are now part of Universal Studios and DC has uh, licensed uh, the the character from Universal basically, licensed by DC uh, to continue use, using the character but the Isis TV show starred uh, Joanna Cameron as uh, Andrea Thomas uh, who was you know clearly a white American and not Egyptian at all as she is in the comics um, she is a school teacher and, and on some sort of like a school trip, basically, that's never really explained, found the magical amulet of Hathshepsut. And I'm very glad that I got that out. Hathshepsut, uh, which gave her these sort of vague set of superhuman powers, basically transformed her into this goddess-like being called Isis, who could fly and control the weather and she had telekinesis and clairvoyance and whatever other powers that the writers felt that they could justify and had a rudimentary budget for, right? Like her, you know, let, let's just say her flying special effect was not very impressive. Um, but, uh, you know, every so often we could cut to, you know, footage of a storm clouds or something. That was her weather control power and that sort of thing. Um, so we had two seasons of... Isis TV show episodes in which we established 
that she was in the same universe as Captain Marvel, the TV show, right? The two of them had several crossover episodes, um, once again, that were fairly easy to make because they were literally filming right next door to each other um, and were, you know, being done by the same management team. Uh, the character was uh, licensed by DC to have an Isis comic that lasted for a few issues in the 70s, was not terribly popular um, and uh, didn't really go anywhere uh, as a character before largely disappearing from the DC universe. Um, but the show is notable in that it's the first weekly superhero show with a female lead, historically ever. It actually comes before Bionic Woman by about three months, and it beats Wonder Woman to air by seven months. So actually, Isis is the first ever superheroine with her own TV show. Yes, it was a Saturday morning, you know, show as opposed to like a, you know, weeknight action show with a much bigger budget. But still, you know, she should get her credit for that. Um, it was created by a guy named Mark Richards, who was also the lead writer on the Brady Kids cartoon and did a bunch of other like children's, uh, you know, shows for for uh, for filmation, basically, uh, including the Larry Storch Ghostbusters uh, series, not the uh, not the Ghostbusters that, you know, but the one that came beforehand. So she gets, as we mentioned last week, she gets added to the DCU as part of the new 52 series um, in which she is uh, on, uh, Adriana Tomas now, who is given to Black Adam as a slave by Intergang as part of the kind of their partnership in opposing the Justice League. Uh, Black Adam, of course, has no interest in keeping her as a slave and frees her. And they have several kind of like interesting discussions uh, over the course of several issues of 52 that basically lead to them falling in love with each other. Um, having fallen in love with each other, uh, Black Adam then asks Shazam uh, to make you know his bride, his his new uh, his new wife, also a hero like himself, and Shazam gives her this magical amulet uh, that gives her the powers of Isis, and so they get married and then become the heroes of Kandak, and then they are betrayed by Sobek, as we mentioned in the previous episode, uh, where she is basically fridged, <laughs> right? She is killed uh, to you know, put Adam in to change his character and to change his situation. It's she's absolutely an example of the, you know, the women in refrigerators uh, trope, basically, in that she gets killed off to let the guy have a more interesting story. Black Adam spends years in the comics trying to bring her back. Finally, she does come back, but she's evil and she gets defeated. Uh, and in the post-rebirth current DC universe, all of this is backstory, and she has been dead the entire time that we've that the Rebirth uh, series has been going on. So she just remains this character in the background. But apparently, uh, there, if she's going to be relevant in the in the movie, she may get a comeback. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. I mean, that's why we've seen so much um, Black Adam in the last couple of years because we've been, as I said last time, I think I've been hearing about this movie for at least a decade. This, this is going to be the love interest, basically. So so after that, uh, the character who's probably been in the trailers the most ex besides The Rock is probably 007 himself uh, as Dr. Fate. That's right. Played by Pierce Brosnan. Dr. Fate is even older as a character than uh, Black Adam is himself. Um, his first appearance is in More Fun Comics number 55, all the way back in May 1941. Um, 
And all we know about him when he first shows up is that he is a mysterious sorcerer with a fairly cool kind of design, right? Like he's got one of the best costumes of the early 40s with his cool helmet and cape. He's got like the, you know, the blue costume with a gold helmet that's got a really kind of fascinating look to it that covers his face. So he never like has an expression showing or anything. Um, And he doesn't get an origin story until like a year of his comics have been published. Like he joins the Justice Society and everything before we know who he actually is. Uh, But eventually we get around to telling his story um, where he is revealed to be uh, Kent Nelson, who was the son of famous archaeologist Sven Nelson. And Kent, at the age of 12, joins dad on an expedition to Mesopotamia somewhere. And dad, uh, despite being famous archaeologist, apparently believes that the pyramids were built by aliens. And the comic does not treat this like it's a crackpot idea. It's like, oh, clearly this is the sort of opinion that a famous archaeologist might have, is that uh, the pyramids were built by aliens. So, okay, the two of them go, you know, kicking around in some pyramids, and they find the statue of of a being called the Great Nabu. And the great Nabu is apparently an Egyptian god that uh, nobody has heard of. We'll explain who Nabu actually really was in a minute. But in the comic, uh, he is apparently some sort of an Egyptian god, and they accidentally release the being that's inside the statue. And when the being comes out, when he's released from the statue, there are all these poison gases that come with him at the same time, and the poison gases kill dad. Poor Sven dies, you know, like right in front of his son. Um, Nabu didn't intend to kill him, but, you know, isn't exactly going to exert himself to bring him back or anything either. Uh, But he does feel bad that, you know, this child uh, in front of him is an orphan. So Nabu explains that he is not, in fact, actually a god as you understand it, but he is an alien, one of the aliens who clearly built the pyramids. Uh, He is from the planet Cilia, and he will now teach Kent uh, the secrets of the universe. And so he adopts this you know, 12-year-old boy, uh, and he's as good as his word and trains him in all kinds of, like, secrets of magic and, you know, stuff, basically. It's kind of unclear whether it's really science or magic that he's teaching him. Uh, you know, this the, the alien seems to kind of, like, act like they're basically the same thing. And so when Kent has grown to be a man now, uh, you know, however many years later, um, Nabu gives him a costume and the name Dr. Fate and sends him out to protect the Earth. Uh, he, this is his, you know, he's in a series of basically eight-page comics as one of the features, the anthology of More Fun. Um, in those, he meets a, uh, he meets a nice lady, Inza Kramer, who becomes his longtime girlfriend and partner. Um, and she's also kind of like a, an expert on the occult and everything, so she can kind of help him research problems and that sort of thing. Like I said, he joins the Justice Society and appears for quite some time, uh, you know, as a member in there. But his feature gets canceled in 1944. He was never really that popular a character, despite his awesome look. Uh, you know, the stories weren't that good. He never got a bad guy who was really kind of worth remembering. Um, and uh, he gets canceled. And right around the same time that he gets canceled, he kind of stops showing up in Justice Society, too. Like he's, you know, just not an interesting enough character to kind of like stick with the Justice Society for the five or six years that they're still around past 1944. Uh, So he doesn't really appear again after 1944 
until the Justice Society is brought back in uh, the Silver Age in the pages of Flash. And he is now one of the members of the Justice Society, the team that the Earth 2, you know, that that, that is the superheroes of Earth 2, uh, that uh, the Jay Garrick Flash is a, a member of, right? Like first we meet, uh, Barry Allen meets his, you know, Earth 2 counterpart. And then in a later story, uh, the same way that Barry is part of a Justice League, we learn that Jay is part of a Justice Society. And so we see the lineup of the Justice Society that includes Dr. Fate. Once again, presumably not because he was that popular character, but because he's so much fun to draw. He just looks awesome, right? So uh, the Justice Society then eventually get to team up with the Justice League and we get to see Dr. Fate actually in action a few times um, where he is clearly a super powerful wizard of the Doctor Strange school of you know, magic spells that are mostly energy bolts that he throws at people and stuff. Um, he gets two issues of Showcase uh in the late 60s to do not a solo story but to do a single team up with our man right? it's him and our man working together to fight some other bad guys they get to fight solomon grundy once in one of the stories which is kind of fun but apart from that he, dr fate only appears where the justice society appears right like he's he's part of the team but he doesn't really have any solo adventures or anything the origin of dr fate gets revisited over and over again None of the writers that like ever work on him are ever quite happy with it, right? Like it never quite makes sense. Um, Paul Levitz does a story in DC Special Number Ten. DC Special was a series that like uh, you know had a bunch of different formats, and one of the formats that they would occasionally cycle through was called the Secret Origins of Superheroes in which we would have a new modern retelling, modern for the 1970s retelling of the backstory of some characters, right? And so Paul Levitz decides to kind of like fix Dr. Fate's origin in number 10, which is uh, comes out in January of 1978. And Levitz is the one who creates the idea of the Lords of Order and the Lords of Chaos. These are now two, uh, you know, sets of like cosmic beings that are constantly in conflict with each other um, that, you know, represent the forces of order and chaos in the universe. And Naboo is in fact uh, one of the leading members of the Lords of Order. And he is, uh, you know, he's not just a regular old alien, but he's now a super cosmic energy being of some sort who is like the great champion of order. And the Lords of Order and the Lords of Chaos have been like locked in battle with each other for thousands of years. And Naboo's body over the course of these like thousands of years that he's been fighting, his body has basically worn out, right? Like his body is about to die, but he's so powerful that his existence, his spirit could still live on without a body. So Naboo trains young Kent Nelson, who, you know, like finds him in the pyramids again, um, and uh, gives Nelson his final lesson, which is to transform Naboo, the energy being, not with no longer has a physical body transforms Naboo directly into Dr. Fate's costume, basically. So like Naboo is no longer a person. Now he's a helmet and a cape and a set of tights, basically. Mm. Uh, and so Kent Nelson continues to wear him uh, and has Naboo there kind of like talking in his helmet to give him advice and stuff as he goes out to fight crime. Kind of weird and awkward, but okay, sure, whatever. 
this story is actually like turns out to be a, tremendously important because several other writers at DC decide they like the idea of the Lords of Order and Chaos. It's not so much that they love Dr. Fade as a character, but they like that conflict. They like the idea that, of this existence. And so a bunch of other characters in the DC universe kind of like have the Lords of Order and Chaos and the battles that they're having as part of their backstory, as part of like what's going on. So all these other characters like Arion and Amethyst and the rebooted Hawk and Dove and a bunch of other characters have the, those same Lords of Order in Chaos in their backstory. And even though it's really obvious at the beginning of the, of the stories, the Levitt story, that the Lords of Order are good guys and the Lords of Chaos are bad guys, this has kind of changed over the course of time to being like, both of them are not very good, right? Like Order and Chaos are not the same as good and evil. And really both of them behave in ways uh, that can occasionally be good, but frequently are kind of bad. Right? And so Dr. Fate's, you know, membership, the fact that he's literally wearing a Lord of Order into battle and everything has become kind of a, a, a grayer, kind of like mixed representation of a character. He's not really a pure good guy anymore. Now, during World War yeah. II, the, the stories that were being told there, Dr. Fate had his helmet design change. It, like from the early stories, he's got a full face helmet that kind of, you know, covers his entire face and makes him look kind of spooky and creepy uh, because you can't ever see like what his expression is. And editors thought uh, that this was kind of a creepy look for a good guy. Right? This is the golden age. We don't really, you know, like having a, a good guys who are, you know, scary and creepy looking. So uh, for a while he had they changed his helmet so that it only covered the top half of his head, right? And showed his mouth so that you could see that he was smiling and that sort of thing, right? Like, clearly he must be a good guy. Look at all the smiling that he's doing. Um, and so for the last year or two of his comics, he's wearing this just kind of like half a helmet. Um, and when they brought him back in the Silver Age, the writers and artists who brought him back were like, no, the, the full face helmet is much cooler. And we're going back to that one. So Roy Thomas is writing in All-Star Squadron in the 80s, uh, decides to kind of like play on this reference and says that, okay, during World War II, Kent Nelson clearly found that Naboo himself was kind of pushy and possessive and kept kind of like taking over his body at inconvenient times and everything. And so he didn't really want to work with Naboo anymore. So he got rid of the helmet, which is now apparently the only part of the costume that Naboo lives in. Right, like we've changed that story, uh, so he's not actually in Doctor Fate's underpants or anything anymore. Now he's just in the helmet, uh, and so he abandoned that helmet because he didn't want to listen to Naboo complaining all the time and wore a different helmet during the war. Uh, then later on, he like lost the real one for a bit, but then he got it back and he like made up with Naboo. The two of them came to an alliance, and he got his full helmet back to look cool again and this portrayal of Naboo as kind of a dick basically he's just really just sort of like a terrible being has kind of stuck with him ever since and most modern writers now say well Kent Nelson was a good guy uh absolutely Dr. Fate is a good guy but inside his helmet is a voice who's not really a good guy all the time right so Fate got a brief solo run in The Flash in 1981-82 as the backup 
feature, right? Like during a stretch where DC increased the size of their comics, but didn't increase the size of the main story. You know, they weren't paying full page rates to have Flash have a full 30 page story. Instead, Flash kept getting like a 22 page story and there'd be a backup feature that was the diff- the, the other eight pages, right? And Flash went through a bunch of different backup features. Firestorm was a backup for a bit, a couple other different characters. Dr. Fate was one of those guys. After the crisis, they made Dr. Fate part of the new Justice League lineup by J.M. Demetis and Keith Giffen. Um, as he was now, you know, there was a bunch of like major superhero characters who were not available to be in the Justice League. Uh, and so since the Justice League didn't have Superman or Hal Jordan or Barry Allen or, you know, Wonder Woman, all these other characters that weren't going to be in the Justice League, they felt they needed to add more powerful characters to replace them. And so Dr. Fate was like added to the lineup, basically. Giffen, the artist for that run of Justice League, got into him as a character and developed a whole kind of set of stories about the Lords of Order and Chaos. And that got him spun off into his own limited series and then followed by a solo series that was the first time Dr. Fate ever had his own comic. And uh, in that comic, uh, Kent and Einza both die early on. They're replaced by uh, first a guy named Eric Strauss and then his girlfriend, uh, leading to Dr. Fate for a while, both having a male and female version running around, right? Like they both had the ability to like summon the costume basically. So there was like male Dr. Fate and female Dr. Fate. Then they got merged into a single being. Um, this fate got uh, killed by Extant during Zero Hour and the helm and everything were lost. Then the helm was recovered by a mercenary by the name of Jared Stevens, who got his own brief series called The Man Called Fate. Uh, that was not very well received and was uh, basically went away after only a few issues. And then we come to the modern Justice Society stories again, as we uh, have spent a lot of time because this is the same story set of stories that Black Adam was featuring in uh, so heavily. Um, and in this story, uh, this set of stories, uh, we have Hector Hall. And if you remember him from our Sandman stories, uh, he was the son of the Golden Age Hawkman uh, who had died after briefly being the Sandman uh you know uh himself in the, in the dimension of sleep when he died uh he was brought back basically he was revealed to be in a cycle of resurrection like his parents were and to understand that please once again go back to our hawkman stories but basically every time uh hawkman or hawkwoman or their son die they are eventually brought back so the justice society finds out that a mysterious baby has been born and for some reason Mordrew is trying to kill it and uh, Sandy Hawkins has a prophetic dream, basically brings the Justice Society out of retirement with a bunch of new members, and they go chasing around after this baby. The baby is eventually revealed to be the child of Hawk and Dove, of Hank Hall and Don Granger, and therefore has been empowered by the Lords of Order. So when they finally get hold of this baby, uh, it suddenly grows into a new adult body for Hector, and Hector is now wearing the garb of the new Dr. Fate. The Lords of Order have chosen him to be the new Dr. Fate and gave him, you know, the helmet and the mask and the costume and all the other stuff. And he becomes part of the Justice Society. He uh, hangs around with the Justice Society for a while. Um, eventually, he brings his wife, uh, Hippolyta, back from the dead, uh, and they retire from being in the Justice Society for a bit. Uh, then they are killed by the Spectre during his war on magic, but they are rescued from death by Daniel, by the new Sandman, and they enter the Dreaming, 
never to return, right? They have been removed from continuity, basically, uh, because uh, Daniel has kind of like taken them out of reality. At the end of the Day of Vengeance series, where the Spectre has, you know, been defeated, is no longer a bad guy, uh, Captain Marvel winds up with the helmet of fate in his hands, not knowing what to do with it. And he decides that we should leave fate leave it to fate to determine who gets it next right and he literally throws the helmet into orbit uh and says wherever it comes down that's clearly where it was meant to be this is a magic thing you know the the lords of order will figure it out so then there was a short limited series that followed it in which a number of other dc characters got a chance to wear it for like one issue and turn it down and decide not to become the next dr fate um, so there's a whole set of different mystical characters who each get one issue of being Dr. Fate. Most hilariously, Detective Chimp uh, has the best issue of that and the best story of it, um, who before he gives That's up, awesome. gives before he gives it up, he souls a whole desk full of like unsolved crimes for the Gotham Police Department just by waving his hands, <laughs> you know, like solves all of the crimes, determines who all the guilty people are. And then he's like, now I'll take off the helmet and gets rid of it. Right. So. That's pretty cool. Uh, it is. It's a, that's the most of that limited series was dumb, but the Doctor Chimp story is is brilliant. I love him. So. Uh, Detective Chimp is just one of the best characters anyway. So, absolutely. So then we have a uh, we briefly have a series by Steve Gerber from 2007 to 2011, where we meet Kent V. Nelson, the grandnephew of the original Kent Nelson, and uh, he got uh, you know a short period of time being Doctor Fate. Uh, Steve Gerber was writing it. It really wasn't bad, but it didn't sell that well. And when the chaos of the early 2010s at DC uh, came along, it got wiped out along with a bunch of like you know DC's lines at that time. Post convergence, the new Doctor Fate is an Egyptian American med student named Khalid Nusor, and he first shows up in the summer of 2015, and he is being trained uh, in being the new Doctor Fate by both Nabu. And the ghost of Kent Nelson, uh, that's a relatively recent uh, addition because um, for a while the Justice Society didn't exist in DC continuity, but now they've been brought back. And so Kent Nelson clearly was the old Dr. Fate, somehow died, and now his ghost is training the new one. Um, and that version of Dr. Fate is currently a member of, Doctor, of uh, Justice League Dark and has been kind of running around with them for the last couple of years. Clearly yeah. in the movie, we're getting the Kent Nelson version uh, back. It's it's clear that uh, Pierce Brosnan is not playing a kid. He's playing the old guy, so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he he, he looks like, uh, you know, it definitely looks like Kent Nelson. Like, I don't think they've, I think they've even said that it is. I think they've uh, put his I think he's on. listed in the cast as, yeah. I think he is, so. yeah. Um, he gets, yeah. it's a good look. Right. Like I was never sure. I mean, I, once again, I've said this like several times already today. Dr. Fate has one of the coolest costumes in superheroes. Right. Like, I think it's just a fabulous look. And I really like the version of it I saw in the preview. So. Yeah, uh, Dr. Fate is a really cool looking character and he's always a, he's a really cool support character. I've never read and probably never will read a Dr. Fate solo comic, but okay, um, he's just like. He doesn't particularly strike me as someone who would be great at carrying a series, which I think from what you just went over, like... Uh, the 80s Giffen one is pretty cool. I like is that. Okay. I think that's pretty much the only one of them I can really recommend. Okay. If you like well, Keith Giffen weirdness, right, it's, you know, it, it plays into a lot of, you know, like uh, 
the the like like I said, it goes deep into the Lords of Order and Lords of Chaos, and kind of like gives them both like the, it's all about the Kali Yuga and the New Ages and all the stuff. And it's a uh... is that where uh, the Witch Boy comes from? Clarion? Yeah, Clarion, Clarion. Clarion is in it, but he's he he predates that. He was around before that. Oh, okay. I have Clarion, no Clarion idea. Clarion is a uh, is a Kirby creation from the early seventies. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, that's cool. Clarion is one of the the post New Gods characters that he creates around the same time that he did the Demon and everything. So. Oh, okay, cool. Yes, he is in that storyline because he's part of the Lords of Chaos. So. Yeah. That's the only place I've only ever seen him in conflict with uh, Fate. So I always thought they were linked. Uh, next up, I think, is Adam Smasher, uh, the extremely well-known character. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he's if you've being... seen the preview, he's the really big one. He's the one who's mm-hmm. like you know taller than buildings and everything. So uh, Adam Smasher is a creation of the '80s, unlike all of these characters from the '40s that we've been kicking around. Um, and this is once again a Roy Thomas character uh, from before the crisis. So this was a series that was set on Earth Two, right? Roy is a huge fan of the Justice Society, huge fan of old timey comics and everything. One of the series that he got to write was the Adventures of a, a series called Infinity Inc. And it's the adventures of like the sons and daughters of the Justice Society, right? Like all of the members of the team are kids of or somehow related to members from the Justice Society, but they're new, modern, young, exciting heroes of the modern day kind of thing. Um, But it is set on the same alternate Earth that the Justice Society was on. So they're not on the same version of Earth that all of the rest of the DC characters are. So that's this is the team that has Hawkman's son and Wonder Woman's daughter and all of these other characters that we've referred to before. In this case, the uh, the character who will eventually be called Adam Smasher is currently being called Nuclon. And uh, Nuclon first appears in September 1983. There's a special preview of the Infinity characters in All-Star Squadron number 25. And then Infinity Incorporated number one comes out literally the next month. And Nuclon is a guy named Albert Rothstein. And Albert Rothstein is, uh, we learn, is the grandson of the Golden Age supervillain known as Cyclotron. And Cyclotron had been in All-Star Squadron as a bad guy, and he was kind of a not-that-bad bad guy, right? Like, he was a bad guy who had, like, been forced into, uh, you know, working with the Nazis and all kind of other stuff, and eventually kind of did a face turn. Um, and Cyclotron had all these weird radiation powers. He had been exposed to nuclear radiation uh, as part of, like, the, you know, the Manhattan Project and stuff, right? Um, and so uh, when Cyclotron, uh, Cyclotron's daughter, basically, uh, who was Albert's mother, was friends with the Atom, with the Golden Age Atom, who had been the main guy who had fought Cyclotron, like Cyclotron's main opposite hero, basically. And so as part of like kind of making up for the evil that Cyclotron had done, uh, uh, Nuclon's mother basically had kind of become uh, friends with the Atom and named Adam as the godfather of her child when her child Albert was born. Now, the gag of the Atom, if you recall this character, is that he doesn't have any powers when he first shows up. He's just a super bodybuilder dude um, who is an expert boxer and everything, uh, who wears a costume and a mask and everything, but he's just a you know street-level superhero. And the shtick of the character is that he's short, right? Like, like he's five foot two, 
but he's still incredibly strong and can beat up guys much taller than him, et cetera, et cetera. Um, eventually, he gets superpowers to kind of like keep up with the rest of the team. He becomes super strong. But for the first few years of the Atom, the gag is just that he's just a short guy who can fight really well. So Nuclon, when he was introduced, uh, Roy decided basically to kind of like reverse that joke and say that, well, Nuclon is just a really tall guy who can fight really well. Right. Like he's the opposite of the atom. He's seven foot six, uh, you know, and so, the, uh, you know, has this kind of like preposterous build to him and everything. But otherwise, doesn't have any superpowers yet. He's just a well-trained fighter, basically. Um, this, again, doesn't last very long. Roy never intended for it to last very long. Um, and so in the same way that the Atom eventually got superpowers, Nuclon also was revealed to be a mutant because his grandfather had been exposed to weird radiation. And so his uh, superpower that he was revealed to have was the ability to kind of change his size and his density. So he could become super tall or super tiny, and he could become super dense and therefore super strong and indestructible, or become completely intangible and walk through walls. And this is a pretty cool power set that he becomes kind of one of the most powerful members of the, you know, of Infinity Inc. Um, when Infinity Inc. broke up, uh, when the series was canceled, they got moved to our Earth. They became part of our Earth all along. And uh, Nuclon was in the Justice League for a while. Uh, as uh, you know, part of like the late '80s, early '90s teams, and somehow during all of this time, he lost all of his powers except growing. Right, like we have never seen him as Adam Smasher use any of his other powers except for growing to be like 50 feet tall. And it's never oh. been explained if he still has them somewhere, and you know maybe just has never gotten around to using them, or did he lose them at some point? Literally, DC seems to have just forgotten that he ever had any other powers besides growing. <laughs> anyway so like he's in that version of justice league for a while then he kind of disappears and when the new justice society series gets put together in the early 2000s we bring him back with a new costume that looks much more like the golden age adams costume he literally now has a full face kind of lucha me mexican wrestling mask and a whole new costume that kind of has the same color scheme as the adam uh or the you know at least the, the cape of the adam anyway um and now calls himself adam smasher and his only power is to just grow to be super large. He's part of like the, you know, the new Justice Society lineup. Um, relatively early in the storylines, uh, his mother is killed in a plane crash caused by terrorists who were working for Cobra. And so this is kind of like the big tragedy that he has is that, you know, his mom, who's been like, you know, part of his supporting cast the entire time, dies in this plane accident. And he becomes kind of like, you know, kind of kind of dark himself as a character for a while about this. And he's clearly agreeing with Black Adam about the whole, I think, you know, bad guys should be killed, uh, you know, uh, uh, attitude. Later on, about a year later in the storyline, he gets a chance to access Metron's hair and uses it to time travel to, uh, well, they're battling a time travel villain called Extant. Uh, basically to have Extant switch places with his mom on that flight so that the villain dies in the plane crash and his mom is now saved and has, you know, history has been changed so that she never died in this plane crash. Uh, this kind of like, you know, the rest of the Justice Society doesn't know that he did this, but suddenly like a couple of them are like, didn't we know that his mom died kind of thing? How come she's still alive, right? You know, 
awareness. So they're kind of like being suspicious of him. Um, and in that set of disagreements, basically Adam Smasher quits the Justice Society and goes to live with Black Adam's unnamed team in Kondak, as basically of the heroes of Kondak, where he can, you know, exercise the mor morality that he personally believes in. And uh, during that stretch, um, it's literally uh, Adam Smasher himself who lands the killing blow against Cobra. Right, he's the one who actually does it. I mean, like Black Adam did most of the work, but in the end, it's Adam Smasher who squishes him basically and kills him. He becomes a local legend in Kandak, right? Like as a you know, he becomes a great hero. He's a hero of their people. His people clearly have no problem with him, you know, killing bad guys. They're all for killing bad guys. Um, and so we, he winds up kind of like working with Black Adam against the Justice Society. When the Spectre goes crazy. Uh, the Spectre apparently kills Adam Smasher briefly. Black Adam revives him with magical lightning. Um, and then at the end of that, like he has, uh, Adam Smasher has kind of a change of heart and realizes that Black Adam's gotten kind of like out of control and realizes where this attitude of killing uh, your enemies kind of like will lead to, right? And so he kind of rejects that and comes back to America with the Justice Society to face trial or all of the people that he killed in Kandak, including Cobra. While he is sitting in prison, while his trial is going on, is when the World War III storyline happens, where Black Adam is like taking on the entire, you know, world, basically. And so Amanda Waller gets him out of jail to join a special suicide squad team that is aimed specifically at bringing down Black Adam. And he want, they want Adam Smasher on the team because he knows Black Adam so well. Uh, after Black Adam is beaten, uh, he gets released from prison as part of his deal for being in the Suicide Squad, even though he's only on the team for like 20 minutes. Um, and then he rejoins the Justice Society. And Flashpoint happens, and now there never was a Justice Society again. And so he disappears from DC continuity. We don't see him for a long time. Um, when the Justice Society is returned to existence and becomes part of the, the, the timeline again after Doomsday Clock, we see him in a group shot of the entire Justice Society. Uh, how he's part of this team, was he now around back in the 40s or something, remains unexplained. We don't know what this character's continuity is. I'm pretty sure he hasn't had a line yet. It, like, we've seen him in several panels, uh, but he literally has not yet even had a line of dialogue explaining, like, what his situation is. Um, so as of, like, you know, as of today, basically, as far as I know, there is still no explanation for what Adam Smasher is doing or did uh, you know, in current current DC continuity, they just haven't gotten around to mentioning him yet. Uh, yeah, I literally cannot remember seeing him in the last like five six years since World War Three. Like I said, he's been in like two panels, yeah. <laughs> right? Total. He's in he's in a group shot of the Justice Society, so clearly he was part of that team. But like everybody else in that group shot are from the forties. So are we saying now that Adam Smasher was around in the 40s? I, I don't know. Nobody's nobody's explained it yet. I think the JSA just showed up in the uh, in Dark Crisis, the, the current, or not Dark, is it, yeah, it's called Dark Crisis. And I think he was in the back. I have to open up my copy again. I think he was in the back, but the only person who's gotten to talk from the JSA are is, in, is uh, Alan Scott and uh, Wildcat. Right, so, yeah, as you yeah. do, right. So yeah. yeah, so once again, it's still not an explained character yet, but absolutely. So next up is the I think I've I think she's in the trailer for all of like three seconds, but uh, Cyclone, right? Right. 
absolutely. She is in the story. Uh, she's on the cast list, so we know that she's there. Um, she first appeared in that same Justice Society run, right? She literally, her first appearance is in February 2007. And uh, she is, her name is Maxine Hunkel. And she is revealed to be the granddaughter of Ma Hunkel, who was a comedy superhero uh, back in the 1940s, uh, who was called the, the, the original Red Tornado. If you're unfamiliar with Red Tornado of that time period, basically, she was literally like a, you know, suburban mother uh, who, uh, you know, was the parent of like two hilarious little kids who were the main features of the strip. Um, And she would occasionally, as part of like the gag of the series, would put on a ridiculous costume, including wearing a mask that was made out of a stew pot that just had two holes punched in it for her eyes. Right. Um, And then a cape and then like long underwear. And she would like, you know, fight some sort of comedy crime and then have to like hide the fact that she was a superhero from her two children. She was never, you know, she was always a comedy character, but she does appear in the very first Justice Society story as a joke. Right. Literally, while the team is having a meeting, she sneaks in through the window, uh, you know, upset that they didn't invite her to the meeting. Um, you know, everybody like, you know, introduces herself to everybody. Uh, they start asking her questions that she realizes she can't answer. So she decides to go back out the window rather than answering the questions and her cape gets stuck on a nail and gets torn off. And, uh, her costume is like torn in the back and now she has to run away, like covering up the fact that like the butt has been torn out of her costume. (laughs) So she's officially part of like, you know, JSA continuity for this, you know, one kind of appearance, right? Later on, she was brought back in the serious Justice Society stories as a retired old superhero uh, who now was the woman who took care of their base and, like, cooked their meals and stuff for them. Like, her kids had grown up, and now she was, like, the mom, you know, home at the base for the Justice Society. So we learn that her granddaughter, uh, Maxine, in an untold story that we have never read, uh, was captured by Tio Morrow, the uh the the mad scientist who created the android version of red tornado um and for some reason uh he injected her with nanobots that gave her the same kind of wind controlling powers that the android red tornado had for no particular reason that we've ever been able to tell except just mad science that's just what mad scientists do she was apparently rescued at some point was discovered she had superpowers and then was part of the new set of recruits that came into the justice society um and you know she was a uh uh only appeared for a short run she was in the on the team for about two or three years um and then that version of justice society went away in time for flashpoint uh, to my knowledge, she has not been brought back in current continuity. It's kind of a shame. I thought she was kind of funny. Right? Like I, I didn't really care for most of the new Justice Society characters that were introduced in the second half of that run. But I thought she was uh, funny because she was clearly being written like she was on the spectrum. Right? She was clearly, uh, you know, like a like an ADD kid uh, who, you know, had trouble shutting up. Uh, around her heroes, the adult heroes and everything, and was just, uh, you know, had a hilariously hard time understanding, like, the emotions of other people, right? It was like, it was like Sheldon having, being a superhero, right, kind of thing, you know? Um, And I thought she was really well-written, and I enjoyed her 
and I would be happy to see her again if she's actually going to come back uh, because of the movie and everything. She'll be one that I'll be kind of like glad to actually uh, see more of. Awesome. Yeah, I hope she does. Last character that we're going to talk about, um, and this might be a spoiler because it hasn't really been in the trailer so far. So if you don't want to have any, uh, you know, characters spoiled, um, we'll give you a second to I was gonna say you might want to turn it off now, and uh, we'll yeah. come back when you've seen the movie. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope the movie was good. Um, <laughs> uh, seen it, uh, and you uh, dutifully returned to listen to the last uh, couple minutes of this podcast uh but uh we're going to talk about sabak or sabak who was one of the bad guys was the primary bad guy i guess the primary powered bad guy in the movie once again we this is before we've seen it yet so i don't know the details uh but he's in the cast list and everything so uh you know we're pretty sure that we know he's there um Sabak is another Captain Marvel bad guy. He's actually a Captain Marvel Jr. bad guy at first. Um, he first appears in Captain Marvel Jr. comic number four in uh, February 1943. And his real name is Timothy Carnes. And he is an American, uh, but he's a Nazi spy. He's a spy and a saboteur. And uh, for some unexplained reason, uh, he is chosen by six demons uh, to get to the powers similar to the Marvel family. It, six demons the same give him powers the same way the six gods have given uh, Captain Marvel his powers. And so he becomes an evil opposite version to Captain Marvel Jr., sort of like uh, uh, Black Adam was. But in this case, he's literally being created by evil beings, right? So he has uh, S is for the uh, invincible strength of Satan. A is for the indestructible body of Ani. Uh, B is for evil wisdom of Belial. Another B for the flame powers of Beelzebub. Uh, A for the evil courage of Asmodeus. And C for the flight of Criteus. Each of these being, you know, well-known either biblical or other religion demons. Um, and he is, of course, working for the Nazis. He is a full-on Nazi bad guy. And uh, he fights Captain Marvel Jr. in each of number four, five, and six of Cap's comic, Cap Jr.'s comic. Um, over the course of those, you know, he puts up some pretty good fights against Captain Marvel Jr., but in the end, he loses. Uh, and when Captain Marvel Jr., when he fails to beat Captain Marvel Jr. in number six, the demons get mad at him uh, for losing all of these fights, and they take their powers away from him. And that is all we ever see in the Golden Age of Sabak, uh, you know, this character, Timothy Carnes. Once again, when Shazam is now being used in the late 70s, early 80s uh, as a DC property, E. Nelson Bridwell is still writing those stories. And once again, E. Nelson Bridwell, big fan of those original stories, goes back and finds a single-use bad guy that he liked uh, from a 1940s story and decides to bring him back um in modern continuity in, in the dc universe and so back as part of that kind of like raid on old faucet properties uh he then appears in several modern late 70s early 80s captain marvel stories uh appearing in world's finest uh and a couple of issues of adventure and that sort of thing basically once again as an evil opposite to captain marvel jr that character had not appeared again for quite some time post-crisis and a new version of Sabak was created by Judd Winnick, and he was writing uh, Outsiders in the early 2000s. This new version of Sabak is a Russian mobster named Ishmael Gregor. And Ishmael Gregor captures 
Timothy Carnes, the human version of Sabak, and like a bus full of innocent people besides, and has them all sacrificed. They're all killed as part of a ritual in order to steal Carnes' powers. And so when all of these people die, the demons clearly realize that uh, Ishmael Gregor is a truly evil being and decide to grant him all of the powers that uh, they're so disappointed that Carnes had used so badly. Um, and so he becomes a bad guy who fights like the entire outsiders for uh, an extended run of stories. Uh, he gets killed, quote unquote killed, by Katana, and his soul is sucked into her blade, as it does when she kills somebody with her magic sword. And so for a while, he was inside her sword, uh, you know, trying to escape along with all the other evil beings inside her sword whose souls have been trapped there. Uh, but he escaped and was still on the loose, still running around as kind of like a free bad guy causing trouble at the time that Flashpoint happened and all of these stories were undone. Again, to my knowledge, he has not appeared since uh, you know, the, the since, since the, the, the rebirth reboot, basically. Um, and so I presume, once again, they are kind of like saving him for this movie uh, to uh, eventually bring him back in DC Comics as well. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, I did not know that the first, that the S stood for Satan. Uh, that's pretty Absolutely. awesome. Yep. All and right, and well. Beelzebub and uh, Asmodeus, they all get their names in there. They're all yeah. Uh, so I think that's all the characters that we have been uh, told about or, uh, you know, mostly confirmed uh, through cast calls and stuff like that. Right. So with that, um, you know, we definitely probably missed whoever the uh, secret character is. So since you've already uh, seen the movie now, I <laughs> hope that a uh, good surprise. I have, I, I, I'll tell you off, off camera, but I do know one of the secret appearances. So. Oh, we're, not going, we're not going to bring it up here. It's it's somebody right. we've seen before. So right. we're just teasing y'all now. Right. Well, yeah. I, think, I think I've heard this one too. Yeah, I think I've, I think I know who you're talking about. Um yeah, I haven't been following the, the rumors on this one very much. Uh every time The Rock talks about it, I get less and less interested in it. So it's the original premise was that he was going to be the bad guy in, I mean, yes, he's been kicked around as an idea, but the original premise was he was going to be the bad guy in the second Captain Marvel movie, right? In the second Shazam movie. Which um, is the thing I wanted to say. Yeah. But he, as they were kind of like working it out, and once again, The Rock has been pushing for this himself, um, but they were like, there's so much backstory to this character Right, that like clearly getting all of that in and having any room left over for Shazam to actually do anything, uh, you know, was looking like a pretty tricky job for the scriptwriter, right? So they decided to like kind of separate the franchises and say, okay, he will appear in a solo movie himself, and then he will be in the next Shazam movie. You know, we'll kind of like establish this, uh, you know, the relationship and the the rivalry between them. Um, but this first movie is going to, you know, like establish him. Uh, as as a character in theory who can stand alone and will be part of like you know the entire extended DC universe going forwards. He's not being he's not being treated as like a villain who we're just going to kill off after one movie, right? So the most recent thing that I remember that I read about this though is that they're no longer even going like next Shazam movie Shazam three will still not have the two of them together. Like the plan was not to is no longer to uh, to have him be the villain in Shazam because. 
It's The Rock. Like he's the biggest movie star in the world. You don't want. Well, him right. To play. He's and he's still. Well, I don't. I think he's going to be in one, but he's still. He's not going to be the villain, right? Like he, they're not treating yeah. him as a bad guy. He's going to be like the guy that we're not sure we get along with, right? Kind of thing. So, I'm pretty right. sure he is. Well, once again, I'd, if there's more up more recent news than I've heard, um, that's entirely possible. God knows these things change on a you know change on a dime as the writers get fired and switched around, but. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like I said, I've just kind of been soured on the on the movie. I think, but I'm I'm excited to be proven wrong and, and for it to end up being really really good. I hope the other, um, I, even if it's a bad movie, I hope the other characters survive. It, like I want Hawkman and Doctor Fate to be around in the in the extended universe. So I would love for Doctor Fate to survive, but I feel like if we're go- if we were doing like the uh, you know when we did for Suicide Squad, the percentage chances. Of characters surviving, I feel like he's got like a three, three <laughs> percent chance of, of making it through the movie. Uh just because he seems like he's going to be the old mentor character, or you know, if not mentor, right? You know, he's going uh, to die to inspire the others, or something. Yeah, he'll die to you know make make Black Adam into less of a bastard or something. Right. Um, but like, you I don't know, know just... it's you know D- Timothy Dalton has stuck around as as the chief for a while, so. Pierce yeah, Brosnan decides sure. that he's having fun. Absolutely, I I love Pierce Brosnan. He's actually my favorite Bond. So you know, uh, which I know is not a popular opinion. I was going but, to say, uh, I you know, uh, terrible opinion. I know, but I, I love uh, <laughs> I love Pierce Brosnan as Bond. Um, so I'd love to see him stick around, but I just the way that they've been showing the uh, the thing, I just don't see it. Right. Uh, but yeah, thank you everyone for joining us. I've been Steve Tasker. I'm Darren Watts. And once again, if you've enjoyed this sort of a, a series, please back us on Patreon uh, so that uh, you know we can continue to afford to uh, bring you this labor of love. Absolutely. We'd love... Um, and also, you can... Uh, once you're on our Patreon, you can join our Discord and Absolutely. suggest what you'd like to hear about. Uh, if you'd like to hear about us talk more about Black Adam, we can uh, go into more detail could change this um, if we get for for enough money we'll change the podcast to the black adam podcast absolutely. only talk about him every two weeks thanks so, so much we probably will not do that but still <laughs> it's an amount of money i suppose that you could give us so to talk about black adam over two weeks it'd have to be a lot of money I, yeah, it'd be a lot of money but it's, it's, it's an amount yeah all right well thank you everyone thanks for coming uh, bye-bye